Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of your wonderful word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the, the text of Scripture that now we have the, the opportunity to, to settle in, to allow to shape us and mold us. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to you, to reflect your truth. And Lord, that uh, we would be strengthened as a body. We would be equipped. And Lord, we would, we would take the things that have been revealed to us and Lord, that those would be the means by which we are fashioned and shaped to be more like you and to be a church that is more like you want it to be. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, friends, God's children are called to sing. Now, notice I didn't say we're called to sing in tune, but we certainly are called to sing. And we are called to sing with substance about God and to God and to encourage one another to see God's glory and to enjoy his rule. We're to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Paul says in Ephesians. We are a singing people, and the songs we sing are rooted in who God is and what God has done, and what God has promised he will still do. So they're not empty, repeated, catchy words put to music. No, they're robust declarations of praise for a glorious and trustworthy God who acts on behalf of his people for his own glory and for our own good. Singing, friends, has been a part of God's people from the beginning. And we have songs recorded for us throughout Scripture. Now, you may be familiar with uh, some of these. I'm not going to mention them all, but I'll highlight a few that maybe are familiar to you. The song of Deborah and Barak, when Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera. Hannah's song at the beginning of 1 Samuel, celebrating the birth of her child and the dedication of that child to the Lord. David's song at the end of 2 Samuel, after he's delivered from his enemies. Then there are the Psalms, just 150 of them. Songs, poetry, reflections, passion, laments, praise, all ending up with the great Hallel, the great praises to God. And then, of course, as we move to the Gospels, there's Mary's song, just the wonder of what God is doing with her. Friends, whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. The Bible says that when God made the world, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And when we get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we hear the song of the redeemed. And here we have it, Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, a little bit to set it up. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, that is a powerful song, a culminating song, a song of the redeemed. Now, having been a parent in my generation, one of the things that my children grew up with was this show called Lamb Chops. And if you know that, there was a song that they would sing, and it's this. This is the song that doesn't end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because. And friends, I know you're all sitting there thinking, why did you put that in my mind? I'm not going to stop thinking about it. But hear this, friends. The song of the redeemed is the song that never ends. And it's not just because. It's because it is the song about God who condescended to his created people who were suffering in bondage to their sins and sent his son to die on the cross to pay the price necessary to reconcile them back to himself. And friends, the church will sing and sing and sing. They will sing in church, in choirs, in quartets, in solos. They'll sing off-key. They'll sing with masks off and masks on. They'll sing alto and soprano and tenor and bass. They'll sing in times of sickness and trial and struggle and pain, in times of persecution, pandemic, and lockdown. They will sing in times of joy and celebration for God's favor. They will sing when the lost sinner is gloriously converted and when the believer declares their faithfulness by going through the waters of baptism. Friends, let's make sure we understand the tone of Scripture. God's people sing because God's people have a great God who has saved them. And so as we consider the proposition for today, I would like to say that our text is a call for God's people to sing praises to the Lord for his single-handed salvation. And that is what this song is about, friends. It is about God's great miracle of deliverance of his people from bondage and the utter destruction of the mighty Egyptian army. And it's an historical event that foreshadows the future event where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, delivers his people from the bondage of sin. How? By sending his son to die on a cross where he receives the full brunt of the wrath of God, thereby paying the ransom for their sin. Now this morning I would like to look at our text in three different ways. I want to look first of all at the structure of the song. So we're going to kind of do some flyover observations. Then secondly, we're going to look at the substance of the song. We're actually going to look at what the song is about and and, and understand it, the, the emphasis that's there. And then at the end, we're going to kind of flesh out some significant points for us, maybe means of application in a couple of different areas. So the structure, the substance, and the significance of 
the song. So let's begin now with what I'm calling the structure of the song. And notice, first of all, we have here a top and a tail, don't we? We have these two songs, the song of Moses and the whole congregation singing with him, and then we have the song of Miriam and the women. And if we think about the song of Moses and the people, it says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has thrown, he has thrown into the sea. It's almost the same thing as what Miriam is saying, isn't it? But here we have with Moses this, this corporate I, where the whole congregation sings praise to God, but in a personal way. Each individual, Moses, Aaron, the people, recognize what God has done individually for them, but corporately they sing together in praise to God for his glorious deliverance. God has triumphed, just like he said. Egypt has been thrown into the sea, and they have been judged. And friends, it's a reminder that when we are gathered together corporately, that we are not just singing as one lump to God, so to speak. We are singing as individuals, gathered together, united together, affirming the same things together. But we are singing it together in praise to God. When we think about the, the song that Miriam and the women sing, it, you might want to say it's, it's a summary song of what we're going to see is a fuller song. But the summary is the same thing as what Moses and the people were singing. But here, it's not, I will sing to the Lord. Here, it, she says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has thrown into the sea. So there's the idea here now, she's encouraging the singing to the Lord. And it's an opportunity then to encourage one another. And that's why I get Ephesians 5, sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to encourage one another. Because sometimes when people are gathered for church or when we are gathered here in our homes, there may be someone next to you that maybe doesn't feel like this. They don't feel like praising God like you are, but you are putting your faith and trust in the Lord in spite of your circumstances. And you're singing with passion and joy to God. And that is an encouragement to someone else who may be there. And so she's encouraging us now to sing to the Lord. So there's this top and tail. Secondly, there's this driving theme. Again, just want to highlight this. The deliverance of God's people takes place because of the hand of God. Notice verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Then verse 12. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Then in verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. All of these events all of these activities, all of the workings here are the result of the mighty right hand of God, the right arm of God being at work. So what God does, he does by his mighty hand, both to exercise judgment and to bring Israel out of Egypt ultimately into their eternal abode. To put it in clearer terms, Israel's salvation was accomplished single-handedly by God. 
And friends, that's a very important thing to understand. If you remember what happened as Israel goes through the sea, all they do is obey. They listen, they obey, they follow. It is God who delivered them. It is God who provided the means. It's God who held the waters back. They simply had to follow. It is God who single-handedly then accomplishes their deliverance and their salvation. So there's this top and tail, a driving theme. There's also a logical organization. And I would just say it's kind of like a sandwich, and I tried to draw it out here for you. Verses 1 through 3, we have um, really salvation, or the question, who is God? Uh, Verses uh, 11 through 12, we have now this reflection, and then we have in verses 19 through 21, again, salvation. And then sandwiched in between them, we have these two sections here, one about Egypt and one about the nations. So the, the, the song here is really emphasizing who is God and his salvation, ending with who is God and his salvation. And then there's another who is God section, but that's more of a reflection time. And we have these emphases now on what God does with Egypt and what God is going to do with the nation. So to say it differently, we have two groups ultimately of Israel's enemies. We have Egypt, who's been defeated by God, bringing about Israel's deliverance. We have the enemy nations, who will be defeated by God, bringing about Israel's rest. All of that surrounded by confident and assuring statements about who God is. And after the logical organization, I also want you to notice, and just kind of put this in the back of your mind, there is a purposeful progression that what began with groaning and despair and crying out to God ends ultimately with singing, rejoicing, dancing, and praise. That's what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. And in the song, there's, there's an identification of what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he will do yet in the future. So there's a sense in which the song encompasses this grand, beautiful picture of God's providence and sovereignty over his people. And finally, there's a theological connection that I I, I want you to consider here. I'm going to read here from Alec Motier, and I think this might be helpful for us as we consider the the kind of relationship that the, the, the story of Exodus and this song bring to our attention as we look ahead to what Christ has done for us on the cross. He says this, The experience of the Red Sea stands in the same relationship to their Passover redemption as the resurrection of Jesus does to his cross. The cross is the finished work of salvation. The resurrection is the act of God which confirms the reality of the finished work and gives us the assurance that our sins have indeed been forgiven and our eternity made secure. So the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead and knew for certain that they themselves were saved and that the past was the past. So when we talk about Israel's deliverance from Egypt, you may have thought about this. The exodus, or I should say the, the, the actual transaction took place there um, at Passover, Right? That was the payment that was necessary. Now God is getting them out of Egypt, and he shows them his mighty power by taking them through these waters of the Red Sea 
and providing for them and, and showing them who he is. In the same sense, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins as that lamb slain for us. But he, he, he solidifies that and, and, and emphasizes that through the resurrection. Okay, these two mighty things are taking place together. And so there is a, a theological connection that will help us kind of frame our understanding and our thinking of this song. So those are some flyover observations that might help us kind of grasp this song together. Now let's look at the substance of the song. Now hear this, friends. For a song to have any meaning, it must have substance. It must say things and explain things beyond generalities. If I were, for example, to send you a thank you note in the mail, and you got it today, and you pulled it out of the envelope, and on the front of it, it said, thank you. And inside, I wrote in the card simply your name, and I signed it. Now, you might appreciate the fact that I took time to write a thank you note and send it to you. And you might appreciate the fact that I'm saying thank you but you would be asking yourself one question. Thank you for what? Why is Pastor Rod sending me a thank you card? What did I do? What is he saying? And why is he saying thank you? You want to know, and having the details helps you know what it was that you did and why I'm saying thank you. In the same way, when we sing songs to God, we want to say thank you. We want to praise him for an aspect of his character, but we want to connect his character to something specific. So he's not just there to look at. He's there to see his attributes in action displayed for us. See, I've heard people, in particular probably unbelievers, sing the song Amazing Grace in the following way. They don't know the song, so this is what they do. Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace. Now, those words are true. God's grace is amazing. But we want to say, why God's grace is amazing. And this song not only celebrates the revealed character of God, we'll see it throughout, but that character, his attributes are seen and celebrated through his works. This is a new song in the spirit of Psalm 98 verse 1 that says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. This new song is rooted in Israel's deliverance and reveals who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. So let's think, first of all, about the fact that we sing because of who God is. And here we're looking at that first part, that middle reflection part, and then uh, the, the end of the text. So verses 1 through 3, uh, let me read it, and we'll notice some things about the character of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has, has, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And as we look at these three verses, there's four characteristics, attributes, or identifiers of who God is that are revealed here that I think draw our attention. First of all, he is a sovereign God. And the emphasis here is this name that you see right away in this song. It's Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. And if you have been with us through Exodus, you know that this is the the name that was revealed in chapter 3 when Moses is at the burning bush and God says, I am Yahweh. This is God revealing himself as the self-sustaining, sovereign God of the universe, the creator, the ordainer the controller of everything. He is a sovereign God. Secondly, he's a personal God. Notice the Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation. He's my God, and that's why I will praise him. And according to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. And so you can know God because you know Jesus. You can know him personally. He's a personal God. Third, he's a covenant-keeping God. Notice here it says, my Father's God. He's connecting now his own praise and his own understanding of who God is with the understanding of the fact that this same God has been interacting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's revealed and covenanted himself even to Moses to bring Israel out of bondage and ultimately to make them a great nation and to establish them in the land. He's a covenant-keeping God. And then finally we find that he is a warrior God. He is a man of war. He reigns triumphantly over all his enemies. Now, he certainly did so with Egypt, and he will do so as Israel enters into the land. He continues to be a warrior God for his people, especially as Jesus goes to the cross. He is fighting for his people by virtue of his death and by virtue of his resurrection. He triumphs over death and over the grave. This is warrior language. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, it records that he will return to triumph over Satan. He is a warrior God. And then when we jump down to verses 11 and 12, here we find something else. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Notice little g. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. And I think what we can see here is that he's a unique God. The words are echoed in Psalm 86, verse 8, and 89, verse 6. God is without peer. He is incomparable. He is utterly unique. And based on this text, he is holy or he's pure. He is glorious. In other words, this is seeing his deeds, what he's accomplishing, and then he works wonders. The emphasis here is that what he does is out of this world. There is no God like him. Friends, we have to understand this because we drive by all sorts of religious places 
regularly. We, we have them interacting around us. But hear this, man creates gods with little g in his own image. Man imagines gods out of his own sinful musings. There is no other God apart from Yahweh, the God of Israel. The triune God we worship as Christians, there is no other God. That is the emphasis that's happening here with God interacting with Israel and Egypt with the plagues. He's saying to all of the gods of Israel, listen, you are nothing. And that is true. They are nothing. Jesus famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive language. He is an exclusive God. Now, this exclusivity must be understood in light of the pagan belief that they're thinking of that day, because they worship gods, and their gods were somewhat territorial. You have gods that kind of represented areas or gods that represented nations. So there was this idea that, oh, Israel has a God, and he is a powerful God. But Israel's God is saying, mm-mm, that's not true. There is none like me. And here, God's people are saying, it's not true. There is none like him. He is the only God. So who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? No one, nothing, nada. And friends, it's another reminder that when we sing, we sing to the Lord, Yahweh, who is the creator, the sustainer of the universe. The perceived gods of this world, whether they be found in Islam, Catholicism, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, or various forms of paganism, they are all nothing. They don't exist. They're empty ideas formed by sinful hearts of men. They're deceptions. They're misrepresentations of the truth. They may want to acknowledge Jesus as another worthy God to be respected and worshipped, but they deny his exclusivity, the very exclusivity he claims. So either Jesus and Israel's God is lying, or he's right. And friends, this is... This is a message that Israel understood, and this is a message that God wanted Israel to understand, and it's a message we must understand also. The God we serve, he says, there are no other gods. I am it. You might create a God, but it's nothing. Now, he shows more of that as how he deals with Egypt. We'll see that in a little bit. Jump down to verse 19 through 21. Here we have, again, a summary of the reason and the rationale for the setting of this song, right? Uh, verse 19, For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. So here we find this, this last one, and we could have said it first, but I left it for last. He is a powerful God. His power is seen by his mighty acts. Now, friends, when you think about the character and the attributes of God, they are not just a description of God. They are evidenced 
through his self-revelation, his word, as well as his deeds throughout the generations. His deeds reveal his character. And what we find is that God is always worthy of our praise. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. This is the God we worship. This is who he is. But the song then also then focuses now on what God has done in the past. And here we have a section that begins at verse 4 and ends at verse 10. What is it that God has done with the Egyptians? A number of vivid images flow out of these descriptions here that demonstrate God's superiority over Egypt and their perceived might and powerful gods with little g. First of all, they sink into the sea like a stone. We see God's power here on display, don't we? Right, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. But here they are. They are like a stone. You can get the image here. It's, yes, it could be God picking up a big boulder and throwing it into the, into the, into the, the sea there. I, I kind of like to think of it as God kind of walking on the shore and picking up um, Egypt like a, like a flat pebble and just skimming it on the water and it just ends up bouncing and then sinks to the bottom. I mean, this is how powerful God is. This is how, how, how nothing, how insignificant the armies of Egypt are. They sink into the sea like a stone. Secondly, they are consumed like stubble. And here we see the majesty of God on display. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Now, friends, what we have here is a demonstration of what we would call poetic justice. Because we've seen stubble before, haven't we, in the story of Exodus. In fact, in chapter 2, where the Israelites were under fierce and relentless oppression, they had to forage around to find stubble in order to make bricks. So in this story, stubble was a symbol of their oppression. And what does God do with Egypt now? He consumes them like stubble. I don't think this is, there's a surprise here that this word is being used. It is imagery of burning stubble that is consumed by God's fury, his wrath. Friends, what, when we think about God's sovereign majesty, I think oftentimes we think of God kind of uh, adorned with expensive regalia in kind of this incredible kingly throne, and we see gold and beautiful uh, beautiful garments and, and all that kind of colorful decoration and colorful processions. But here the majesty that we need to see is his all-consuming wrath poured out on the enemies of his people. See, God is, 
God is majestic. His majesty, the greatness of his majesty as he overthrows his adversaries. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? And they are consumed like stubble. Third, they sink into the sea like lead. We see, we see here um, God's authority, or we could say his justice on display. Notice that these three verses here are bracketed by what God is doing with his nostrils, with his mouth. He blasts nostrils, he blows his wind, and what happens? Well, let's read. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead into the mighty waters. My friends, what we've read here sounds very much like the words of Satan in Isaiah 14 where he says in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Egypt shook its fist at God, and God took Egypt and hurled her into the sea where she was covered and sank like lead. Now, friends, it is in a song like this that we begin to see how powerful, how majestic, and how just God really is. This is what God can do to the enemy of his people if he so chooses to. And it is what God will do one day in the final judgment. And it's a reminder that if God is not acting with such displays of power majesty and justice today in your life or maybe even in our nation, it isn't because he's simply being silent or doesn't care. No, he is working his sovereign plan and we are obliged to stand for him as his faithful and obedient people. Friends, God doesn't promise to deliver us in the ways that we want. God doesn't promise to deliver us when we want. But we who have test, tasted the gospel of Jesus Christ have been delivered. And we look forward to the promised deliverance yet to come. So it is right for us to sing about God's character and his attributes. It's right for us to sing about God's dealings in the past where he has demonstrated his power, majesty, and authority. But we must also sing about God's dealing in our present circumstances in light of what we know about his character and his dealings in the past. And see this, we sing based on what we know is true about God, but also about based on what God has done in the past that we can see, whether it be through the word of God or providentially through the history of the church. So we stand on the shoulders of God's people who have written songs during times of great deliverance, during times of great revival, during times of great devastation. So in the midst of heresy and spiritual darkness, Martin Luther wrote his famous, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. After the tragedy of losing uh, wife and children, Horatio Spafford penned the wonderful hymn, It is well with my soul. 
After a life full of slavery, struggle, heartache, and joy, John Newton wrote the beloved Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And then Fernando Ortega, more contemporarily now, blesses us with this song. When the morning falls in the farthest hill, I will sing his name. I will praise him still. When dark trials come and my heart is filled with the weight of doubt, I will praise him still. For the Lord our God, he is strong to save from the arms of death, from the deepest grave. And he gave us life in his perfect will. And by his good grace, I will praise him still. And here they are singing. They're singing the character of God, but they're singing the character of God based on what has happened in the past that has revealed his character to them. So we look to the past and we sing of God's faithfulness so that we can face the present and the future. So now, let her see, we, because, we, we sing because of what God will do in the future. And the emphasis here is on the land and ultimately on heaven. So this is the second part of the song, and it deals primarily with the enemies that Israel is yet to face. The hand of God brought Israel up out of Egypt, but the hand of God will continue to bring Israel into the land and ultimately into God's holy abode. He brought his people, first of all, out of bondage, verse 13. Notice what it says, you've led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So this is something that happened in the past but has present implications. What we read here is a reminder that God's redemption is not the end of the story. God got Israel out so that he could bring Israel in. He got get Israel out of Egypt, and he will guide them to his holy abode. The Hebrew word here has the idea of a shepherd's homestead. It has the idea of a shepherd guiding his flock to that homestead where the sheep can settle and be secure and be, in, be safe under the protection of that shepherd. So God brought his people out of bondage. Secondly, he will bring his people into the land. So we have redemption. Now we have God's reputation that is at stake. And there's a response of the nations. I want you to notice all the verbs that describe the enemies of Israel. It says they tremble twice in this text. It says they are seized with pangs. They are dismayed. They melt away. They are full of terror and dread. I mean, you can just imagine some of these sci-fi movies, people running away from Godzilla, right? It's that kind of stuff. They're just like, all oh, panic. No way. I'm going to die out of here. This is what is happening with the nations. Now, these words are given to us in the Hebrew past perfect tense. In other words, they are yet future, but stated with a certainty and having already taken place. Now, why? Why are these words used? We're given two reasons, right? They have heard. 
They've heard God's testimony. God has been on display. Isn't this what God was seeking to do all along, to make himself known? To Egypt, yes. To Israel, yes. To the nations, yes. And ultimately, to us. But secondly, this is all happening because God's great arm. He is a powerful God to be feared. They had heard all about God's dealings with Egypt, 10 plagues, their destruction in the waters of the Red Sea. And so now they are seized with fear. Now, I think secondly here, as we consider verses 14 through 16, I want you to notice that there is this, there's a need to understand here the locations of these enemies because this kind of gives us a picture, paints a picture for us of understanding what God is seeking to communicate here. You see, these are the nations that they are yet to encounter. Edom and Moab were the enemies that they would face on the way to the promised land. Canaan is the nation that dwells in the land of promise. And of course, once they get in the land of promise and they get settled, who will be their primary enemies? The Philistines, right? So the point is, God is promising his steadfast love no matter who your enemies are or where your enemies might be, what he has done with Egypt, he can and he will still do with the enemies of his people. His covenant promise is that he will bring Abraham's offspring into the land, but that is not where it ends. Third, he will bring his people into his heavenly dwelling. What we find here is rest. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So God saved his people from Egypt with the goal of bringing them to his heavenly dwelling. Notice the beautiful and powerful imagery in this verse. God will plant them on your own mountain. When something is planted, the idea is that it won't move. It is firmly established in the ground. In my backyard, I have a few plants that I want to get rid of, but I can't because their roots are running all over the place. And friends, this is the idea. They are planted. They are not going to move. And God will plant them where? In a place which he has made. Now, friends, this is not talking about the land of Canaan. This is not talking about the tabernacle or the temple. This is talking about the place that God made for himself and his children in heaven. So in this sense, heaven is the goal of the Exodus. God brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt in order to bring them into heaven to live with him forever. So the wilderness and and Sinai and the land were temporary stops on their pilgrimage to heaven. And friends, for us, the church is a resting place, a recharging station where God's presence renews us and his word guides us to bring us to the ultimate goal, heaven. The old southern song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. The church is a wonderful creation of God. Of course it is, but it is not the final destination because we will all be in heaven with him forever and ever. 
And that's what we read here and now in verse 18, where we find He will continue to reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Again, notice that it's the, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that will reign forever and ever. This is not a promise only for the future, but is a reality of the present. The Lord reigns. And as I read even this, this one little verse, verse 18, I can't help but read this verse without thinking about the Hallelujah Chorus, right? King of kings with an echoing refrain in the background saying forever and ever, and Lord of lords forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Pause. Hallelujah. Friends, God reigns. He reigns now. He was reigning back when Israel was in Egypt, and as they were coming out of Egypt, he reigns. He was sitting on his throne the whole time Israel was growing and multiplying in Egypt from this small clan of 70. He was sitting on his throne while Israel was suffering slavery under the oppressive hand of Egypt. He was sitting on his throne when both Israel and Judah were overthrown by the Assyrians and Babylonians as judgment from God. He was sitting on his throne when the angel sang on the hillside and announced the birth of his son into this world. He was sitting on his throne when the crowds shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then just a week later are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He was sitting on his throne when his son died on the cross, becoming the ransom for many. He was sitting on his throne when the son resurrected from the tomb Friends, he is sitting on the throne now. It hasn't changed. God is secure on his throne. He has never shaken off his heavenly throne. Why? Because he reigns. And friends, he's still sitting on the throne. So whatever trials, whatever troubles you are facing, whatever difficulty this world is seeming to bring you, Whatever dangers you may be facing right now, you and I can be confident and sing with Isaac Watts, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. You know what he's saying? Jesus reigns everywhere and always. And it's because God is sitting securely on his throne that we can sing what we did earlier uh, today. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. This love is not a mushy love. This love is a covenant love. God's covenant love sustains and maintains and is always at work in his beloved children. Now, friends, let's consider now the significance of the song. Having looked at the song, let's kind of flesh it out to maybe help us in some areas. First of all, 
This song should inform our Bible reading. This text gives us into, insight into the big picture of the Bible, doesn't it? We see here clearly expressed the truth that the Exodus was ultimately about God bringing his people out of bondage to come to live with him. You see, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are banished from God's presence. In Genesis 11, we see how humanity seeks to get back into God's presence, but not by God's method, but using their own wisdom. So they build this tower of Babel to get to God. But then in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, we see that God initiates a relationship with humanity on a very different level by means of a promise. God was going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham and his seed. All Abraham had to do was to trust him, and God counted Abraham as righteous, that is, acceptable in his sight and in his presence. See, the rest of the book of Exodus deals with this theme, and the rest of the Bible deals with this theme as well. God bringing his people to dwell with him forever. So not only should it inform our Bible reading, but it should also inform our gospel reflection. The covenant-keeping God has acted to deliver us from the bondage of our sin. Now, friends, this is a bondage that is far worse than any form of human bondage. This is a bondage which has eternal implications. I have a question for you. Do we really understand the severity of our condition before God sought us out and breathed life into our hearts because of what Christ accomplished on the cross? Do we understand what abject slavery to sin actually looks like? When you ponder your life before Christ, when you ponder the reality of that sinfulness, and when you study and, and seek to understand what Scripture says it actually is, and what Christ has actually done to deliver you from that bondage, you will sing. You will sing with passion. You will sing without regard for what other people might think of you or your voice. You will sing with joy and praise to the one who calls you his own. See, we often sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But friends, do we understand, do we really understand what it is to be a wretch? Do we really understand what it means to be lost in the context of our eternal situation? Do we really understand what it means to be blind? And when we understand what those are, then we will understand what the word saved means that amazing grace is talking about. So friends, it should inform our gospel reflection. God in his wisdom delivered his people out of bondage and he's flashing forward to the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross to deliver his children out of their sin and into this new relationship with him. Lord, what, what a joy, what a privilege to be called a, a child of God, to be part of his family.
but friends, it should also inform our worship. For the last few months, we've bumped along singing in our homes at a distance from one another, being led mostly by one voice and one instrument. At times, we've had the privilege of having some pianos in there and stuff. And Still, many of you have just been at home and the song comes out, it's one voice and it's you singing and it's just the two of you and you might not sound that great, but uh, there's something that's important about, uh, about our worship that we need to identify here and it's this, friends. There's something glorious about the simplicity of what we've had to go through because when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter about the instrument or the skill of the person playing the instrument. That's not the focus. It's about hearts fueled with the substance of who God is and what he has done and what he promises to do that breaks forth with praise. It isn't about how good the guitar player is or the keyboard is or the tambourine or the voices. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to do the best we can with the resources that we have, all right? We're not just saying do something shoddy for the Lord, but we're not measuring the true essence of our worship based on the skillfulness of the person who's playing the instrument or the, the, the articulation of the person who's singing. But when we have time to worship, um, we should be more, I should say this way, if when it's time for worship, we are more impacted by the person leading worship than the God that we are worshiping, we've missed the point. And this comes as a result of substance. You know, a number of years ago, in between uh, my previous church, when there was a kind of a season there where we were uh, visiting different churches, we went to Higher Ground Church. It wasn't Higher Ground at that point in time, um, and it was in Oakland meeting in an old converted bar. And uh, we walked in there, and the instrument was a tambourine led by the pastor's wife. And with this tambourine and her voice, the church sang out and sang out with praise. It was simple, but it was worshipful. Now, friends, we're called to sing to the Lord and to one another about the Lord's character. He has acted in the past, and He is guiding us in the present, and He is promising to bring us safely home in the future. These are things for us to sing about. Now, I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 15. And we're going to close with this because this is, this is the song of the redeemed. This is the song at the end of this wonderful uh, book we call the Bible, in particular the book of Revelation. And we're going to begin at verse 2, and it says this, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of, of, of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, I just want to show you the song of Moses now brought together with the song of the Lamb. What we have here is the song of Moses. What we have here is the beginning, you might want to say, of the articulation of the gospel. But we have now this beautiful reflection now of these, the culmination of these songs. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this song. And Lord, as we we kind of pull out the essence of it, Lord, we are reminded that our songs should be filled with praise for who you are in your character. But Lord, your character doesn't kind of float around in a vacuum. It is expressed by its interaction with what you are doing in our world and in the creation that you have created. And so, Lord, we see your your attributes on display through your deeds. And so, Lord, we praise you not only for who you are, but we also praise you for what you have done in the past. But, Lord, we also realize that those two things fuel us so that we can praise you for what you are doing now and what you have promised to do in the future. And so, Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us, Lord. Affect our hearts, change our hearts, Lord. Um, Allow us to be a people who truly seek to worship you in the right way, Lord, with substance. Lord, not just to sing songs that might be cool and trendy within our Christian culture, but Lord, to sing songs that truly reflect what this song represents, that you are at work, that you are an amazing God, that you have promised and you will keep your promises because you have demonstrated, Lord, that you're that kind of God. Lord, help us to sing with praise to you. Lord, help us to read our Bibles afresh. Lord, help us to to revel in the beauty of what it truly means to be a child of God who's been brought out of bondage and into this new, wonderful relationship, being part of your family. Lord, we have much to sing about. And Lord, we are truly thankful. Lord, not thankful just in a general sense, Lord, we're thankful for specific things that you have done, specific things that you are, and for specific things that are true that we can hold on to about our future. And we praise you because of it. In your precious name, amen.